Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just on four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six o'clock tonight. Today, Chance Warland's growing up in rural USA and his experiences as a volunteer with the US Peace Corps in Colombia. The reduction in the sentence for Chelsea Manning, the reaction from anti-war activist Kieran O'Reilly. Nick McClellan and the death of a long-term friend in French Polynesia, the diesel plant at Wonthaggy, problems upon problems with Jessica Harrison, eight years of Obama, what holds for troop with Kathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. No, Mr Kevin Healy yet. That comes in February. But first, people will be outside 357 Collins Street, Melbourne at 12pm again this Friday, the fourth Friday of the month. The building houses the headquarters of Canadian-Australian gold mining giant Oceana Gold. This morning I spoke with Kevin Bracken from the MUA who has attended the demonstration for nearly four years. Kevin, most people believe the demonstrations were over. Not so. Why? Well, I suppose if the company had followed what the court decision was, it probably would have been over, and we wouldn't have to be going back there at the front. But um, the decision was handed down on 14th of October that they pay $8 million to El Salvador. They haven't paid any money, and what they've started doing is putting out false advertising in um, El Salvador about the safety of uh, Marsnick and everything and a lot of other stuff too. The international allies who have been running it, they've asked uh, for support to make sure the company complies with it. And there's a letter, a sign-on letter they're asking organisations to go on to that's asking four things, and that's for the company to accept the decision, to pay the money for Oceana Gold and all their subsidiary companies to leave El Salvador, to cooperate with the um, investigations into the murders that occurred associated with the um, project, and also to apologise to the people of El Salvador and the government for what they've done, for putting them through seven years of vexatious litigation that cost the company $13 million. That's what the reason why we're out the front on um, Friday. There has been another of, a number of um, the ACTU and the Victorian Tradesville Council have signed on to those letters, and actually I think the Victorian Tradesville Council has sent a letter themselves directly to um, Oceana Gold with those five demands as well. We'd like you know, people to get there and put some pressure on this greedy company that's put one of the poorest companies through the world. It costs them a lot of money and tried to sue them for like $300 million, which is about half their school's budget for the year. Just for people who haven't followed this case, Kevin, where did it start? A Canadian company, Pacific Rim, took out the exploration licence at um, San Salvador and, and Cabanos and... They, in 2008, there was a lot of, um, well, when they started doing exploratory drills, many people's water wells dried up because these mines use a lot of lot of water. People started complaining about it. There was a campaign started in the, um, just in the, in the local area to get them to leave. And also there was a lot of 
damages which have been caused by people, which has been caused by um, earlier mining operations in the country. They've got very high levels of heavy metals in the water. There's only 2% of the water in El Salvador is drinkable. And a very densely populated country, there's over 360 people per square kilometre. So um, the government responded and in 2008 they said they're not going to issue out, issue out any more uh, mining permits. So the company took them to the Exet Tribunal in the World Bank because they had agreed to um, implementing legislation and, and Pacific Rim opened up a subsidiary company in Nevada so they could use the legislation with the USA to sue the, the um, government. So that went on for seven years and then that decision was handed down in October and the Exet Tribunal said they, it was a vexatious claim because they didn't own all the land where they wanted to open the mine and also they hadn't done a proper environment, environmental effects statement on there. So the other tragedy is that there's been over five people murdered who've been campaigning against Pacific Rim. And why we've become really active is because Pacific Rim in October 2013 was taken over by Oceana Gold. And Pacific Rim had no assets at all at the time except this case against the El Salvador government. So we thought they might have been a bit unaware of it, so we started a campaign uh, the last Friday of every month out front of their office in uh, Melbourne. But they don't care. They've continued with the legislation. And what's uh, made it worse too is that since the decision has been handed down by the Exit Tribunal, they haven't paid up the money and also started a campaign, you know, saying they've got responsible mining and it's safe and, you know, arsenic's not bad for your um, health and, and other things, other misleading information too. Now, Kevin, usually when there's a court case and, and someone is awarded penalty against them, they are forced to pay. How come Oceana Gold are not paying? The funny thing is with these Exit tribunals, if a company does it, is forced to pay, then they have to pay. And there's been other cases where Occidental Petroleum sued the Ecuadorian government for, I think, $1.6 billion because they, they um, threw them out after they'd caused a massive spill there. The um, Ecuadorian government had just agreed, I think, to a $970 million settlement to pay Occidental, which I think is um, Chevron. Countries can't get out of it, but it looks like corporations can. I believe they've got 120 days where they can seek an annulment, and then it goes through the whole... It's like an appeal process where they've got to hear the whole thing again. And what's this cost El Salvador, a very, very poor country? Very poor country. It's cost them over $30 million to defend the court case. So the $8 million they're getting back is nowhere near what it's cost the country. But it's also caused a lot of dissension in the local community too because El Salvador is a very poor country. Over five local people have been murdered who were campaigning against, this, against the um, mine. One of your demands are that they immediately cease publication of paid advertisements and other misleading information on their activities in El Salvador. They've opened up another a number of um, subsidiary companies. There's El Fundacion, I forget that actually, it's a, it's a Spanish name anyway, but they'd spend a, they put about $10,000 out and they said, oh, look, you know, we're putting this out to um, educate women and, you know, to deliver with schools. So there's been some of that money has been spent on uh, programs around there and they've put some money into buildings. But on the, on the one hand, while they're putting about $10,000 into um, local projects, they're trying to sue the government for $300 million, which is a massive amount for, for such a poor country. The company, the original company was Pacific Rim. 
Oceana Gold and I'll face Alfondacion. They've asked them all to pack up and pay up and leave the country. And we have to remember that Oceana Gold hasn't got a very good record in at least one other country either. That's right. The biggest mine's in the Philippines, in the Dibio. That mine's caused a lot of environmental damage. And also there's been two people murdered in December 2012 before that project opened up as well. So there's a lot of opposition from that mine, from the civil society, from the local people in the, in the area. What happens when you go to Collins Street on the fourth Friday of the month? Well, we just get out the front and we actually go through the process, talk about it, talk about the people who have been murdered over there, school teachers, a mother of six who was actually eight months pregnant at the time, the first one, Marcelo Rivero, he was, he'd been tortured badly. It's very similar to what the um, death squads used to do in El Salvador through their civil war. Coincidentally, a, one person who was a um, vice president for Pacific Rim at the time was later found cutting up a municipal employee and putting his body in, into two suitcases. A lot of the calls have been on the um, Attorney General for El Salvador to question that person about because he was in charge of Pacific Rim at the time when the murders occurred. And we don't believe he's been questioned about any of those murders at the time. Looking at the situation here in Australia with the TPP, you were campaigning against that as well. What's the connection with the TPP proposal and what's happened in El Salvador? Well, I suppose the important thing is that the TPP contains ISDS, Investor State Dispute Procedures, in there. And that's exactly the same legislation as what this corporation suing the government of El Salvador through. So that means that any, any corporation who's invested money in Australia can use that ISDS legislation to sue us in the exit tribunal in the World Bank and that tribunal doesn't care about anything except you know whether that corporation's profits have been compromised. So what it does is just give corporations enormous rights, more rights than what local organisations, uh, local corporations have got. So they're no more than a corporate takeover, and I suppose this case, you know, perfectly is an example of why we shouldn't be implementing legislation, trade agreements with um, ISDS legislation in there. Well, it seems that the Liberal coalition here in Australia is determined to go ahead with it, even though the US has said no. What's the likelihood? Yeah, well, it's just the height of stupidity. But I'd ask people, don't take it for granted that it'll be voted down, because Jason Clare, who's a lot the... Um, Labor shadow minister hasn't said he will vote against the implementing legislation. And if people want to go onto the AFINET website, there's a, um, a campaign to get to get people to email him and tell him to vote down the implementing legislation. Because the uh, Nick Xenophon team, the, the Greens and Labor do hold a majority in the Senate, and if they vote down the legislation, it won't get up. But it's a height of stupidity because the legislation, uh, the um, TPP says that if the US isn't involved, which is the largest economy in, there, in the agreement, and it won't go ahead. What this government, Australian governments need to implement legislation that will bring about desirable outcomes in this country. What they're doing is that they're following an ideology, free market ideology, which delivers inequality and injustice. About time that the, the Australian Labor Party actually stands up and tries to implement legislation which will bring about a desirable outcome our country, you know, which means meaningful employment for people and a decent country to live in and a just country to live in. The details for Friday? Is it, uh, it's at 12 o'clock at 357 Collins Street 
in the city. And you'll be in good company there with um, members of the MUA? That's right. The Maritime Union's been campaigning for well, three and a half years now. Just on another instance of um, fightback, the Maritime Union was very involved with assisting the workers at CUB, and that's a, a victory? That's right. It was a fantastic victory for the CUB workers. It's a uh, credit to the men who held out there and um, all the support that they got too. And it's, you know, while people want to say that, you know, oh, unions can't do anything about it or, you know, unions are relevant, unions are really re relevant. They've needed more now more than ever. And actually it gives you a good example when people stick together for a decent cause, then we can actually have some good outcomes too. And did the men get their just entitlements? They did. They, got, they all got their job back and I believe they've got um, improved conditions on what, from what they um, left with. Okay, congratulations once again. Sorry, fantastic campaign for the workers and the, and the unions involved, the uh, ETU and the, and the metal workers. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Jane. And that, of course, was Kevin Bracken from the UNUA. And if you're round on Friday, 12pm, 357 Collins Street in the city, it's only for an hour, but it's well worth going to. Not many people have the experience of living in five countries by the age of 30. Chance Warland has, and Australia is number five. Having been born in Iowa, US, he's lived in Germany, Colombia and South Korea, where he plans to settle permanently. Number five, of course, is Australia, and he's been volunteering here at 3CR for the past couple of months. I asked Chance first how life was for him and his family, in a small town in Iowa as a young boy into teenage years. I guess to explain, so my family, my dad actually was born in New York City, and then when he was like three or something, his parents moved out to the Burbs. You know, he's from New York State, but I guess his family is sort of like a New York City family. But my mother, she's a farm family, you know, like a farm gal. Like, I just remember growing up that, like, my mom was, like, terrifyingly large and strong, you know, so, like, I always wanted to not upset my mom as opposed to my dad. And then so we had this weird dichotomy of my father being from the city and my mom being from rural Iowa. And then for a couple of different reasons, we grew up like an hour or two from where she grew up in Iowa because, you know, it's a fairly large state. Growing up in a small town, we didn't have family nearby, which was, was actually different than a lot of families. A lot of families like they had relatives in town or, you know, they could go visit a relative in a quick car trip. I had none of that. So even though my father is from New York City area, I saw his family as much as I saw my mother's family who was in the same state. And then growing up in a small town, you know, it had its um, its pros and its cons, as anything does. Growing up, I would say that the cons were much more prevalent in my thinking. <laughs> they were much more like a daily uh, reminder than the the pros. But as I've left Iowa, I, I you know I do miss it at times, and I, I know that there were some positive things about growing up in that small community. But um, yeah, for my family, my parents, unfortunately. I really don't think of them as very good people, and I don't talk to my parents anymore. And growing up, we kind of knew that as well. And so... Why? Uh, very abusive, physically abusive, mentally abusive. We were very poor, but as I like to tell people, because it's funny to me, being cheap is worse than being poor. And my family was both. So I knew we didn't have a lot of money, so I tried not to ask for money from my parents. But then for, for things that I knew that I should have had and I ended up just paying for them out of pocket once I could start working, I really should have told my parents, like, hey, you should, guys should take care of this, you know, and maybe I would have had more savings, which would help me in college because I had to work all the way through college. 
my two older sisters and I, we kind of found like surrogate families, if you will. I like to call my, my friend's parents, uh, my fake parents, affectionately. They really kind of took me under their wing. And, and even now they keep track of things. And I got a Christmas gift from my fake parents. Um, they just sent me some money digitally. And, um, you know, it's just, it was like, wow, like, you know, these people are kind of like my family that I get to choose, you know, as opposed to my, my blood relations. And then unfortunately, my younger brother, so I'm one of four children, he didn't really do that. I think my, my parents' mental health got worse as we grew up. So he was kind of more sucked into being a part of our genetic family and wasn't able to find those surrogates. And, and there's a lot more details, but that, that's kind of just a good way to generally describe it. And so my two older sisters and I have gotten out and we've traveled the world and we've been all over the place and he's never really left Iowa. I have a lot of regrets about how things have turned out for him. And so he's still in Iowa and then, you know, I'm here. Was your first place out of that family environment college? Yeah. So um, I lived in basically the same small town with a few exceptions here and there my entire life in Iowa. And then so, like I said, I was kind of really focusing on the negatives of growing up in a small town. And so I really wanted to get out of the state. Sort of didn't matter where, but I wanted to get out of the state. And so I went to school in Boston. I had a great time at Emerson College. I think I had a great education. I made a lot of good friends there. I had a fantastic time. It was expensive, but it was really good. And Why Boston? Well, yeah, so that was the thing is that so while I grew up in, in my small town in Iowa, I, I did have some travel opportunities. So my two sisters went to school in the L- L.A. area and I got to visit them. Gosh, I can't remember, but I think that was probably just aside from like some driving with my friends, that was mostly it. So I went to California and my older sister, Dawn, she went to Harvard grad school. She went to divinity school, which was very surprising to me growing up in a very non-religious family. But it was something she really you know, wanted to focus on and, and spend some time of her life studying. So great for her. And obviously, Harvard's a great school to go to. And so I visited her when I was like 16 or 17. You know, Harvard's in Cambridge, but basically Cambridge, Boston, and kind of like the same city almost. Emerson College, you know, when I got there, she was like, there's this great student radio station that everyone listens to. And I, and you know, I know you like radio, so you should go check it out. And I went there and I just showed up cause I had no idea what was going on. And you, know, you have to register for tours and all those things, but some really cool kids who, um, unfortunately I didn't remember who they were. And I don't know if I ever saw them once I went to Emerson a, a couple years later, maybe they were upperclassmen and they graduated, but they just were like, who's this kid walking around? Like, do you want to come in? And they showed me the radio station and I just had such a great time. And I was just so infatuated with Boston cause it was different and it was a big city and you know, lots of things to look at. So they did college in Boston. Just step back a bit. How did your interest in radio start? Yeah. So I've always been a talker. Growing up, at the time, I didn't think about this, but looking back, it's very obvious that my mom was very mentally ill. And so being at home with my mother all the time as a small child, she was constantly talking at a very high rate, like I am kind of now. I just got very comfortable and I expected it at at some point that I still kind of do now, which has <laughs> caused me some troubles. But, you know, I'm a, I was allowed to say whatever I wanted. I was allowed to yell at my mom. I was allowed to contradict my mother and she was allowed to do the same thing to me. And it was just like the way I interacted. And I just love talking and I never thought about it being any different until I went to public school and I constantly got in trouble because I couldn't sit still and I couldn't, it wasn't that I couldn't follow directions, but it just was literally hard for me to, to follow directions because I didn't have directions at home. I kind of did whatever I wanted, you know. And then so when I got older, I never really consciously made this decision, but it just seemed like radio was kind of like my love. And I listened to a lot of talk radio. I worked all the time once I hit 16 when you could drive in Iowa, which is, you know, very important. You have to drive everywhere. And I would come home late at night and I would park my car in the parking lot for where we were living at the time. We popped around the different housing areas of the city because we 
never really owned anything. And I would just listen to talk radio, just sit in my car and listen to talk radio. And it was the most enjoyable like part of my day looking back, which is kind of weird to think about it, but I guess that's why I do radio now. But studying journalism is a lot more to journalism than radio. Sure. I never really call myself a journalist. I think I've fit more into that category in the last five or so years. But um, I always wanted to do radio. I wanted to do talk radio. I never wanted to do reporting. I never wanted to expose, you know, these problems that people um, had under the rug. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to talk about things that I cared about and things that I thought were important. And then so that's why I always say that I liked radio. And so now I often tell people I'm a broadcaster. But um, before coming to Australia, when I lived in South Korea, I worked for a Korean radio entity and I worked as a reporter. So then I would often just tell people I was a reporter, which I was very comfortable with because that described what I did every day. But, you know, journalism, I went to school with kids who that was their focus and like they wouldn't even like give me their opinions on like news if we were just like hanging out or at a party. And I'd just be like, what? Like you can't even like talk about stuff and, like, no, I'm a journalist, you know, like I don't want to. I, maybe these are my words, but like they didn't want to tarnish the waters, you know, be like, oh, this person thinks that way and that way. And I understand that now, but at the time it was just nuts. And I just like sort of made fun of them. So what did the course teach you then? You were there for how many years in Boston? Yeah. So normally in the United States, um, it would be four years. Um, but I went to community college at nights when I was like a junior and senior in high school because I just wasn't really excited about going to my rural school. They offered this program that you could like take a couple classes a semester. So I had a lot of credits coming in. So I actually could have graduated in three years, but I did three and a half and I was in Boston. But then I took a year off after three years and did a fellowship in Germany. And then my school has a campus in LA. So my final semester for three and a half years in total, I lived in Los Angeles and I took a couple classes and did a lot of really cool internships. Yeah. Talk about Germany. Was that your first time outside the U.S.? When I was in California visiting both of my sisters, who, as I mentioned, went to undergrad out there, we took like a trip to Mexico, like a couple days with like her boyfriend and his friends and everybody just got drunk on the beach. And I was like a teenager just being like, whoa, I'm in Mexico and people are drinking. But yeah, more or less, that was like my real trip outside of the United States. And it certainly was the first time that I'd ever stayed outside the U.S. for more than a few days. And I ended up staying a year or so. Why Germany? Um, so I, I was a fellow of a great program, the Congress Bundestag Youth Exchange for Young Professionals. So it's between the German um, Bundestag and the uh, American Department of State. There's hundreds of kids that go switch, you know, Germans and Americans switch kind of switch places each year. Is this sort of anything to do with your background, your parents' background, Germany? Oh, no, no, that just happened. So when I applied for this program, I mentioned that like my, my mother's like a German farmer. And then uh, most of the kids in, in my, my, my specific program, there are many different age groups. My specific program was like end of college, first couple years of working. So maybe like 21 to 23, 24. And most of them were very different medical students, Germanic language majors. Um, there were a couple cooks, you know, just like not media. I was like the token media kid. And I often feel like maybe that's why I got in. I'm not sure actually why I got in. And, and sometimes I think about how my life would be so different if I hadn't done that experience. But luckily, I got in. I had a, a good time. Although at the time, you know, there were some ups and downs. They have these charts. They show you like, you know, when you first get somewhere, you're feeling so great. And then you like have this dip. And then right before you leave, you go right back up to feeling really good because you finally feel adjusted by the time you actually end up leaving. So I, I went through all that. What was the aim of the course? Well, yeah, so it was a fellowship, so it was just goodwill between Germany and the United States. Okay, so um, you didn't have to really achieve anything? <laughs> I like the way you put that. That's great. You didn't have to do anything, Jens. No, no, no. It was, it was really structured. Sometimes I wish there was a little bit more structure, but um, we did three months of language training. 
And then I went to a German university. I actually attended several universities because I could pick and choose some classes that I was interested in. And then I did six months of internship. But I'm a workaholic, so I ended up doing an internship during my classes as well. So I did quite a lot of working for German radio stations in Berlin, yeah. And got back to the U.S., and then what was next? Back to the U.S., and as I mentioned, did uh, my last semester in L.A. Okay. Yep. Um, interned for Conan O'Brien when he was on The Tonight Show before he switched to TBS and all that. And um, also worked for uh, Jimmy Kimmel, who was uh, the ABC version of Conan O'Brien, if you will, who was at NBC at the time. And I also uh, had a few um, opportunities to, to work in radio. And one of those was with Adam Carolla, who was basically the reason I got into radio. You're giving us all these nines, but they don't mean a lot to oh, us. Oh, yeah, people might not. So Jimmy Kimmel and uh, Conan O'Brien, late night television. And then uh, Adam Carolla, for years, hosted a, a syndicated show across the country called Loveline. And so um, him and Dr. Drew, a doctor, and um, people would call in with questions about sex and sexual health and all these different things. But it was like a comedy show. They would have a good time and they would have celebrity guests. And this was the program that I listened to in my car at night that I told you about. I didn't name it, but this was it. So I would sit in my car listening to Loveline. And so when I first went to school for radio and when I did radio in high school, I wouldn't tell people necessarily that I liked radio. I'd say, I like Adam Carolla and he's on the radio. And so I want to be on the radio, too. Were you interested in politics at all in those years? Not as much as I am now, certainly, as I've gotten into more reporting. I mean, kind of changed the type of radio that I do, or I just expanded the type of radio that I do. But when I was young, I was definitely opinionated. I was pretty progressive for my area. It was difficult at times. You know, you hear a lot of disparaging things about the people or groups, and then, like, you don't want to say anything because, like, you know, you don't want to be the weird person in your area. But I always felt a little bit different. And where were you getting your information from? Oh, television. You know, I, I watched the news a lot. When I was a really young kid, since I had no rules at home, I would watch like PBS just because I guess I found it more interesting than other stuff. And I would, I would always just watch the news. And once the Internet became available in my area, I would check websites and stuff. But um, politically, growing up with my family was very difficult. But spending so much time with my mother, even though there were a lot of issues that I've already kind of mentioned, she was never – hateful towards any group of people and she i remember from a very young age like her telling me that like black people are just like we are like when i was three or four she probably would tell me that and it always stuck with me and uh, her her sister was gay and um uh she like sort of i guess was um not in really contact with the rest of the family but i knew that from a very young age before i even maybe knew what that was i knew that i had a gay aunt lesbian aunt you know but my mother would always just like oh your aunt's gay I was always interested in, in those types of things, but also um, I got involved a little bit into um, local politics. Um, I was a delegate. I'm not sure if you understand um, how that works, but um, I was a delegate for John Edwards when he ran for president back when I was in high school, which was the first time. And then the second time um, he, his campaign exploded because of some infidelity on his end. Um, so that was interesting that I was a delegate for him. But at the time, you know, I, I thought he was a good candidate as a progressive in my area. Of course, I voted democratically. I went to a couple state conventions and I was the young kid with all the adults and I was really loud. And so, you know, I kind of stuck, stuck out like a sore thumb. So I was, I was, I was involved probably more than probably anyone else in my class. You must have learned a fair bit about how the system works, the political system, being a delegate, going to those different places, meeting people. I'd imagine most people in the United States wouldn't have an understanding of how the system works. I think it's the same as here in Australia. Most people don't have an understanding of how it works. I think that's probably fair to say that a lot of people in certain areas, especially, might not have an idea of what's going on. But like I said, unfortunately, when I was a kid, I didn't really think about things the way I do now. I didn't think about like being a reporter. I thought more of just um, I like talking and the radio will let me do that. So I don't think there was a lot of um, 
analysis going on in my mind when I was one, going to these places. I just thought it was really cool and it was so fun to do things that were different and be involved. And I met John Edwards. He was at one of our conventions later on once he'd, he'd lost the nomination for the party, but you know, he was still a big name. So he came and I got a picture with him. Um, so yeah, for me, it was just a really good time and, and something to keep me out of the house away from my family, which was always important to me. Yeah, I didn't really give it a lot of thought. How old were you when you went to Columbia and why did you go? I think I was probably like 24. I'm 30 now. Yeah, it was not good. So I was a Peace Corps volunteer. It's government service. So um, they always tell Peace Corps volunteers, at least they did for my group, that you you can say you served your country like someone would if they were in the Marine Corps or the Air Force or in the Navy or something. But we were unpaid. We were volunteers. And I wanted to originally do a couple different things, and I expressed that when I was doing my application. But the Peace Corps, for one reason or another, they gave me the opportunity to go to Columbia and teach English. And I have a friend who was in the Peace Corps at the time while I was applying, and he said that, like, you know, it's really not a good idea to, like, turn down an offer from the Peace Corps. You usually just take it. So I listened to him, and I took it. Maybe bad advice. And I went to Columbia, and I had a horrible time. The Peace Corps does not care about its volunteers. They um, will refuse you medical service. This happened to me. I got very sick. My story was highlighted by the New York Times around the same time that a Peace Corps volunteer in China died um, because they just didn't take his illness seriously. He died of like a respiratory illness, like just like a, a normal type of thing you could you could get some relief from. And his family sued the Peace Corps for like $16, $17 million. I'm not sure what happened with that. But I hope they I hope they got something because the Peace Corps will not change. They will not care about their volunteers until until they're publicly shamed for their horrible actions that have hurt many people. And many people have been killed because of direct negligence or horrible actions the Peace Corps has taken. Aside from the fact that I don't have a great opinion of the Peace Corps, I believed um, at the time, and I still generally do, in the idea of you know helping people. Columbia, we were the first group to go back in like 30 years. The Peace Corps started under JFK, but uh, gosh, like maybe like 36 years ago, Peace Corps volunteer was kidnapped by the FARC, the big um, you know military group that now they're having peace talks with, and so they pulled everyone out. And um, my group was the first group to go back like 30 years after that happened. And so unfortunately, I didn't really quite understand this at the time because it was my only Peace Corps experience. But other countries have had Peace Corps volunteers for years or decades. And so you get there, people know who you are. There's a system in place. There are people in your community who are other Peace Corps volunteers who can help you out. But we were all new, so there really wasn't anyone there to help us but ourselves. And when the administration that were hired by D.C. and brought to Columbia to work with us, so like American citizens, they would do really bad things or really shady things. And we didn't really know that that was not okay. We just thought that's how it works. This is just an example that sticks in my head. We forgot to give you these forms like uh, three or four weeks ago. It's like a legal form. We need you to sign it with a date from a month ago. And I held up my hand and I said, this is not okay. But unfortunately, as I remember it, no one else in my group really wanted to complain. And they're like, whatever, it just is what it is. I was often complaining. And so I tried not to complain so much because I would be the complainer, obviously. But um, I wish I'd stuck up for myself more. Maybe I would have had a, a better time and certainly maybe wouldn't have had the health complications that I did. Where were you based? I was based in Barranquilla on the uh, Caribbean coast. So that's where um, Sofia Vergara uh, is from and Shakira is from, but um, the city, even though it's, I think it's a couple million people, it's very um, segregated by class. Um, and then because, you know, minority classes tend to be poorer classes, it's also segregated by race. And so the northern part of the city was really nice. They had air conditioned malls and we'd go to a movie there every once in a while. But we lived in the middle to southern parts of the city, which were uh, had more crime and more poverty. But at the same time, 
my Peace Corps situation, at least on paper, wasn't nearly as um, perhaps um, challenging as a lot of other people would have. You know, if you live in like a rural area of Africa, you might have to take a bus for multiple hours to get even to a city of t tiny size, you know, not like a village where you're living. But I lived in a city of like two million people. So living in cities such as that, you don't really have any idea of the fighting that's happening certain areas of Colombia. It doesn't affect well, everybody, or yeah, does it? It kind of did. It um, did. That's the problem with the violence in Colombia is that it's like everybody's been affected. So people would tell me they've had family members murdered or um, a lot of the poverty in Barranquilla and other cities um, that are have become larger is because people fled the countryside. So people would say that, oh, you know, my family is not from here, but we came here at some point. And even in one city that was near Barranquilla, I think it was Santa Marta where this happened. If I remember correctly, I think it was Santa Marta, yeah, which is a great city. It's like right next to a nature preserve. It's much more beautiful than Barranquilla. I kind of wish I had been sent there instead. Some kid, maybe 14-year-old, threw a grenade into a market, killed a bunch of people. And if I remember correctly, this was tied into the FARC. So stuff like that happened. Someone shot my house that I was living in in Barranquilla. We had a party. Um, my family that I was living with, we all had lived with families. They had a party. And um, I went to bed at some point because I think I had training the next day. And I'm like, I got to go to bed. Sorry, guys. Um, and then they all laugh because the American can't hang out and party as well as the Colombians can. But the next day I woke up and I think I remember hearing a sound when I was sleeping. We hear lots of sounds in Barranquilla. So that wasn't out of the ordinary. I go downstairs and my guest family is like, there's the bullet hole. So our neighbor apparently got robbed or uh, attempted robbery um, when he was walking from my house right next to his house, which was right next door. I sort of got half assaulted during a, a robbery, but um, I just sort of like ran away from the people <laughs> that tried to take stuff from me one time. And a friend of mine, not stabbed, but he got like slashed by a knife being at like a little corner store with some other people. And so he had to go to the doctor and get a bunch of shots and stuff like that. So, you know, it wasn't the safest place to be. What was your job there? So I was teaching English. I was at a, a colegio, so like a primary to 11th grade. So kindergarten to 11th grade because public schools in Columbia don't have 12th grade like they do in the U.S. I was teaching every class. I'm a workaholic, so I try to do as much as I could. So usually every day at 6.30 in the morning, I would have a class of like 50 kindergartners. And then throughout the rest of the day, I would teach different grade levels, working with multiple teachers. Um, and that was my main gig. But in the Peace Corps, you have a lot of secondary projects. Working at my school is very unfortunate because they just really didn't seem to want my help, which is another problem with the Peace Corps is they'll put you in a situation where like this is what you're supposed to do, but they won't really make sure that you're in a place where you're able to do that despite your best intentions, you know. But I had a lot of uh, secondary projects. So I did a lot of um, English conversation courses like at an institute that was open to the public or like a pizza restaurant that I became very good friends with the owners. I actually would play jazz music there every weekend for almost the entire time I was there. I also had a radio program. It's called um, Inglés al Limite, which was sort of a, a joke that I made with my guest mother because she would watch <laughs> a really funny show called Mujeres al Limite. And it was um, like sort of like a telenovela soap opera, but it was really particular because they would have like the scenes going on and then they would cut to like a woman sitting on a stool in like a sound or a, a, a television studio stage. And she would like give this testimonial, like sort of breaking the wall so you know that, you know, she's talking to somebody. And my guest mother would always watch that every day when I came home from school. And um, so when I made a, a show, basically like English to the max or English to the limit, 
was what I did. And she thought that was funny. And that was on a Christian radio station. Everyone's very religious where I lived. Yeah, we would, uh, I would interview students or interview teachers, or we would just give like English lessons, English lessons in English and Spanish. Did you report back at all about that time there to the authorities to express your discern? Oh, yeah, all the time. That? They didn't care. I would no, tell them all the time all. I was having difficulties at my school. What um, about when you got back home? Filed okay. complaints. No one cared. No one did anything. I was constantly in contact um, with people in the Peace Corps telling them I didn't think I was getting the type of treatment that I did. And eventually, you know, you just have to accept it. Do you want to be in the Peace Corps or do you not? It, Take it back to that. Why did you want to be in the Peace Corps? I liked helping people. I came from a really bad situation. But My family. Surely there were other things you could have done. Yeah. Well, maybe there was a sense of adventure as well. I mean, you know, being in the Peace Corps is certainly not the not the normal thing. And I think in my life, I've done a lot of things that for people that grew up in my area are not quite so standard. So I, I fully admit there was some adventure as well. But the sicker I got and the worse that it got and other people were having some similar situations, you know, we would talk about what was going on. It just eventually it seemed like, wow, like this is really bad. But I got really sick and, and, and I had to leave. Of course, when I got back to the United States, the doctors that I saw immediately told me what was wrong. They immediately figured it out, got put on medication and stuff like that. But for months, I was just denied medical care. My Peace Corps medical officer would ask me if I was making it up. She asked me if, if you know, if I was depressed or things like that. And I just, I felt like really like no one cared. Certainly sounds like nobody cared, but that was his experience of the U.S. Peace Corps. That's Chance Warland, who's now volunteering here at 3CR talking about his early life. Next week, we'll hear all about South Korea. Come to the rally against the Centrelink Debt Recovery Scheme at 12.30 on the 31st of January at the State Library in Melbourne. The government has unleashed a flawed debt recovery scheme. Thousands of past and present Centrelink clients have been told to pay debts they don't owe. This has been a highly distressing experience for the people affected. We all need to stand up to this attack and demand the scheme be scrapped. Come and join the rally at 12.30 on the 31st of January at the State Library, corner of Swanson and Latrobe Streets, Melbourne. Visit the Facebook page, Dignity Not Debt, end a Centrelink debt debacle. Spread the word and we'll see you there. Organised by the Australian Unemployment Workers Union. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Last week, President Obama commuted Chelsea Manning's 35-year jail sentence for leaking documents to WikiLeaks in 2010. The release date now is May this year. Australian anti-war activist Kieran O'Reilly has been campaigning for Chelsea's release since she was in, first incarcerated and with other Irish activists have been supporting her family in Pembrokeshire in Wales. I spoke with Kieran at the weekend and began by congratulating all those who have been working long and tirelessly to free Chelsea and commented that it is mixed feelings, though, her release. She shouldn't have been there in the first place. You know, it's great relief, and I guess 
my feeling at the White House press conference when they started to use the Manning case against Snowden and make those kinds of distinctions. At that point, I felt the commutation was going to happen. Before that, I had no sense of that, and I was very distressed by the suicide attempts at the end of last year, and from my own speculation, I had the sense that Chelsea, looking at the next 28 years, and couldn't do that, really. So um, it was great relief that the commutation happened, but you know, incredible outrage. Uh, she's been put through all six and a half years, and it'll be seven years by the time uh, she walks out of Leavenworth. And the torture, you know, right at the beginning, she wait at Quantico, and just being around her mother and aunts and uncles and seeing what they've gone through and all that kind of stress. And then there was nothing in Obama's statement. And considering Obama voted against the Iraq war as a congressman, well, when he was running for president, announced the Iraq war as dumb and a stupid war, he didn't at all couch the commutation uh, in that context, which was, of course, the motive for Chelsea acting when she was deployed in Baghdad and was witnessing firsthand the U.S. war crimes on the people of Iraq. You know, you kind of contrast that to, I think, President Carter's hardening of draft resistance or draft dodgers that fled to Canada during the Vietnam War, and he uh, he pardoned them with an acknowledgement that the, you know, the Vietnam War, like the Iraq War, was uh, a bad war and a war that caused all sorts of people to take different actions, like leave the country, and etc. So it wasn't very, very different from when Daniel Ellsberg, you know, was originally uh, charged, and with the uh, Pentagon Papers, when you had a large anti-war movement and enormous anti-war sentiment in society, and Chelsea being the longest-serving prisoner of uh, those who opposed and exposed the war in Iraq. And a lot of ways, I felt was, uh, was very isolated with the lack of an anti-war movement. And even those anti-war organisations, the NGOs and all that, uh, were very lax in uh, their solidarity for uh, anti-war prisoners, who ironically were mostly military. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of feelings. It's been a big focus of mine, uh, along with the indefinite detention of Julian Assange here in London for the last six and a half years. You know, it feels like kind of um, this collective weariness has kind of hit me after <laughs> after really pushing it for a long time. Can you give us an idea of the treatment that Chelsea was meted out to while she was in prison, or while she is still in prison? Chelsea, unfortunately, was arrested in Baghdad. The leak actually happened uh, while she was on R&R in the United States. And, you know, the way WikiLeaks had set itself up, I think Chelsea may have avoided detection. But she unfortunately got into a chat room with Adrian Lamo, who was a very famous hacker who'd been compromised by the FBI. That's why Chelsea was discovered and uh, been arrested in Baghdad. Then they took her over to uh, Kuwait, put her in a cage in a tent in the desert and, uh, you know, played with sleep deprivation and lighting and all that kind of stuff. And then after two months, moved to the Quantico Marine barracks, even though Chelsea's not a Marine of the US Army, put her on a wing uh, where there were no other prisoners kept on that wing, so in effect it was solitary confinement. And then uh, they had this rigorous schedule that, that amounted to torture, really. From memory, it was woken up at 6 a.m., and then from 6 a.m. to, I think, 10 p.m., could not exercise or lie down in the cell. Every five minutes, she had to respond with an audible response the question, are you okay? So, this is like, you know, I guess, uh, metaphor is Chinese. A lot of the torture was psychological. If 
she was asleep and uh, turned to the wall or put her arm over her face unconsciously or consciously, the guards would rush into the cell, put her in a stress position. It took, I think, an hour of exercise a day that was done in the larger cell while she was in uh, chains, you know, connected to the ankles and the upper hands and the waist. So this went on for about nine months, and I think what they were trying to do was to break her to get her to concoct the story about Julian Assange, so that Assange had incited her or whatever. So Chelsea had re- refused to cooperate, refused to answer those kind of questions for interrogators. It's quite interesting, the publicity campaign they ran against her, like, they were kind of presenting Julian as bad and Chelsea as mad. And, we, and this is a contrast to Edward Snowden, because the first time we hear Chelsea's voice is actually two and a half years into the incarceration, and that's when someone uh, surreptitiously takes Chelsea in court at Fort Meade, which also doubles as head, headquarters for the National Security Agency, and I think it was a pre-trial hearing. And the voice we hear is very coherent, very logical, it's very moral. Where, of course, Edward Snowden, they couldn't do the job they did on Chelsea with him because he flew to Hong Kong and spoke directly to camera. And, of course, they tried all the bullshit to discredit him, but, but you know, obviously, seeing Snowden on camera, uh, you're quite quickly convinced that this person is taking a moral stand, is uh, intelligent, logical, coherent, and knows what they're doing. Once the sentencing occurred, I think the prison conditions improved in the sense that she was no longer in isolation in solitary confinement, which isn't unusual in the United States. There are like 80,000 prisoners in the United States in solitary confinement for life. Unlike Europe, the European Human Rights Constitution or whatever sees um, human association as basic to food, as food and shelter and clothing as a basic right, where the way the United States I think the Eighth Amendment at the moment, they don't see human association as a basic human right. So I think once you got to eleven were from what I can understand, mixing with the general population, with working in the kitchen and the the living conditions improved there. But there was also kind of looks like like heavy persecution occurring, which is like charged with having a tube of toothpaste that was out of date and some kind of teething. You know, uh, like that, so there was a bit of a kind of ongoing hostility, and then the, the suicide attempt at the end of last year, and she was uh, charged with that and put in solitary. You know, and I think um, I think I read a statistic that said most jail suicides happen in solitary. So maybe logic to that. I just watched Obama speaking at his last press conference today, <clears throat> and addressing why he commuted the sentence. He admits that it was an excessive sentence. He's disproportionate, sort of whistleblowers. And he also gets says that Chelsea Manning did hard time, which is probably the closest. He's going to get to him admitting that she was tortured. So they're the motives that Obama expressed for the commutation. And now you can speculate about why Obama did this and whether it was question compassion or concern about his liberal legacy or whatever. She hasn't been pardoned. She's no. only had her sentence commuted commuted from 35 to 7 years and that's why she's remaining in prison till May because she was arrested in May 2010 in Baghdad so that'll be an even 7 years What access to visitors has she had in that time? We, uh, over here once, once the uh, conviction and sentence occurred and we made contact with her mother and aunt and uncle and um, 
they had been three times to Quantico and to Leavenworth uh, to visit from Wales. You know, kind of it's an expression of how flat the anti-war movement is with the solidarity with people. They'd paid all their own uh, airfares and things like that. So we went about starting a fund to finance that kind of travel. Talked to the sister, an older sister, who was born in Wales, where her um, mother and father met. Her father was a US military deployed in Wales, mother's Welsh. And the first child was born in um, in Wales. So that sister lives in the United States and, and has visited and is in phone contact. And the military had a policy, which is unusual, is that no one could visit her who didn't know her before she was arrested. So any kind of political support or anti-war support or whatever was barred from any direct visiting, which, you know, my experience of being a federal prisoner in the United States, it's uh, quite a contrast to a civilian prisoner. Yeah, it's had a, a legal team in contact with her, and there was a Chelsea Manning Support Network that, that was uh, operating. Did she in recent times request to be transferred to a women's prison? I'm not sure about that. I mean, when I was in a jail in Texas, there were 10 transgender prisoners with us in the prison population. I'm not sure how that request would play itself out. What was your connection with the the family more when you went to Wales? You and your friends have been there a number of times. Yeah, my connection was really as a former anti-war prisoner myself and... I remember hearing about the arrest in May of 2010, and then I went, actually went to a Stop the War meeting in London for Joe Glenton, who I've met since uh, his reflections for peace now, and who's been released after refusing to redeploy to Afghanistan. He actually went to Australia and was hiding out there for a year or two before coming back and self-surrendering. That was the day I think the Iraq war logs was published by The Guardian. And there were eight speakers on this anti-war panel, including Jeremy Corbyn from memory. But um, they all celebrated the uh, the WikiLeaks revelations, but there was not one mention of Bradley Manning then or Chelsea Manning, who was in prison, who was being accused of releasing them. So this really shocked me, you know, as a anti- former anti-war prisoner that I'm at this anti-war event, celebrating the work of someone who's now incarcerated, and there's no concept of prison solidarity. And then later, actually, I came across a British Navy medic, Michael Lyons, who'd been working on submarines, but he'd been told to deploy to um, Afghanistan, but he had read WikiLeaks, and which was the Manning Revelations. He had decided that it was in the moral war, and he was refusing to deploy, and he was incarcerated in Colchester military prisons. And he's now part of Veterans for Peace, too, actually, but and part of a punk, a thriving punk band in Brighton. But, um, you know, my first encounter with him was in this military prison in Colchester. So it was amazing to see what someone who'd been directly affected by Chelsea's resistance and exposure of the war, who themselves was, was not now refusing to cooperate with being deployed to Afghanistan. So it was a very direct link. Then uh, once the sentencing happened... We, a friend of mine who's based in Wrexham in Wales, Jenny Bove, and I made our way to Haverford West in Pembrokeshire, where we knew Chelsea Manning's mother lived, and there we met the aunts and uncles. You know, I just had this idea, we've got to bring this to Dublin, because uh, I knew a lot of people who'd been around 
our trials in Dublin. We were on trial three times for the crazy US war plan on the way to Iraq. So that was very successful. We took mum and two aunts and an uncle. And I think Dublin was closer to London, actually, because the Hannaford West is quite close to Fishguard, which is a ferry right over to um, Waterford. Yeah, Jerry Conlon, who'd served 16 years uh, in frame with the Guildford Tour, came down from Belfast, and he, you can, you can Google it, a brilliant speech on YouTube, speaking about, well, both uh, Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange, and it was a great evening. And it was the first time the family of Chelsea had been with a large group of people that had actually actually supported what she did. So that became a really good relationship over the last three years with an actor, artist, Donald Kelly, and he rounded up some musicians, and within six weeks after that meeting in Dublin, we were in Chelsea's Welsh hometown doing Kaylee and, uh, and music and stuff, and then, yeah, there's been a lot of back and forth between Havens of West and Dublin, and uh, the last thing we did was um, in November we turned up for the band and the Chelsea Manning support band from Dublin and uh, we did a surprise gig for Chelsea's uncle Kevin who's in very poor health on his 65th birthday. So it was very much like, okay, we're based over here, that's where the family is, what we can do directly to support the family. And there's going to be have to be a, a great deal of support for Chelsea when she's released after what she's gone through. Oh, yeah, I think um, yeah, there are a lot. There's probably you know, physical and mental health issues coming out of that experience, as there was, you know, for Mordecai Vanunu, who did 11 years of solitary and 18 years total in, uh, in an Israeli prison for uh, exposing Israeli nuclear weapons. <coughs> you know, people come out, um, and David Hicks as well, you know, people come out you know, a little bit destroyed by the system. You know, it's very important to not to romanticise them or demonise them, but to accompany them and... Um, I know from my own experience, I mean, I, I come out usually with anger management issues where, you know, for other people, they kind of internalise and get quite depressed and stuff. You know, as a movement, we need, you know, I was, I was uh, interviewed on Russia Today yesterday and um, I'm saying that, you know, when you march against the war and two million people in London march against the war in Iraq, what you do implicitly is incite people to expose and resist the war. And uh, if you incite people, you're obligated to accompany them once they hit the courts and the prison system. You know, that's not rocket science. And, you know, really, this is a war that's gone on for 20, over 25 years. Like, we're, you know, involved in resistance to the beginning of this war, which was the Gulf War in 91. We was able to beat 52 bomber in upstate New York. And Chelsea was only two years of age then. Chelsea was 14 when the invasion of Iraq happened in 2003 and was opposed to the war, spoke out against the war at a school in Wales. Then, of course, gets economically conscripted into the US war machine, ends up homeless in the United States, joins the military, and uh, ends up in Baghdad. So it's, it's a war that hasn't stopped since 91, and it's, um, it's escalating and it's expanding. It's obviously expanded into Syria. And now it looks like uh, we've got friends coming back from Turkey saying, you know, it's really jumping the border there, you know, it's expanding into Turkey. So hopefully there'll be further resistance to it, non-violent resistance, and when, when that resistance appears, and it'll appear from all sorts of places where you won't expect it, like the US military and the British military, and techies like Julian and Edward Snowden, and, um, you know, they look very different to us and have different musical tastes and different hairstyles, but we've got to get over ourselves and support any resistance that occurs, you know, and... Uh, 
think I just heard today that five um, friends uh, have just been charged with trespassing at Time Gap with, under the Defence Undertaking Bill that has a maximum seven years. So, you know, they're going to need a bit of support if they go through the courts at Alice Springs. You know, so the war continues in that pretty anti-war decision. How is the support for Julian at the moment? I was outside the embassy yesterday and there's a really uh, great uh, group of people there, an Irish guy, uh, a Chilean woman who lived through the Pinochet coup, a Colombian guy who was tortured in Colombia, and they're the main stage of a vigil been going for four and a half years, four times a week now, outside the embassy. And from all reports, you know, morale was good in the embassy. They were quite uh, very, very pleased that, that Chelsea's getting out. And, um, you know, Julian, I think, has been you know, really demonised, especially by the Guardian newspaper, which, of course, is the newspaper for the Liberal left in, in England and um, very hostile in England. Uh, he's probably got a lot more support in Australia and the States. And, yeah, he's very resilient. Like, I just listened to a, did a press conference today that's on YouTube and, you know, he's got a very clear idea of what's happening in the world and uh, he's very committed to his work and resilient. So he's got to get him out. Thanks, Kieran, and congratulations for your no work. Worries. And that, of course, was Kieran O'Reilly, Australian, Irish, anti-war activist, and he was speaking to me from London. It was Friday night in London. It's coming up to five minutes to five o'clock on Melbourne Community Radio Station Three CR, or you could be listening to us on your computer. 3cr.org.au Streaming, podcasting in a few days' time. Last week, journalist and researcher Nick McLean spoke about the United Nations General Assembly confirming the first committee vote for negotiating a nuclear weapons ban treaty. This is the final part of Nick's interview. What about French Polynesia? They suffered a great deal with the the French tests. What's the feeling there at the moment? Well, people are in mourning in, in Tahiti. A very good friend of mine uh, died at Christmas Day. Uh, John Taroenui Doom was the founder of Muroe Tato. That's the Association of Workers of Muroe. We've talked on this program many times about the workers who staff French Polynesia's test sites over the 30 years of French nuclear testing um, with the prospect of a conservative French Prime Minister next year, either François Fillon of the Republican Party, a, a deeply conservative man, or Marine Le Pen, uh, the neo-fascist leader of the National Front. Not much of a choice, you know, between the two in many policy areas. For French Polynesians, John's death was a, a real tragedy. I mean, in some ways it's symbolic that uh, two days after the United Nations decided to, uh, to take action on nuclear weapons, he passed away. His life work completed in 1966, July the 2nd, uh, the first time that France exploded a nuclear weapon at uh, Mororoa Atoll. John was there. He was interpreting as a young journalist for the French minister who'd come to witness the tests. And what he saw, that first nuclear explosion in the sky um, above Mororoa Atoll, changed his life. And he spent, from 1966 onwards, the next 50 years of his life campaigning against nuclear weapons. He was very active in the church, was a deacon from 1971 of the Église Evangélique de la Polynésie Française, which is the main Protestant denomination, the largest church in French Polynesia, and later became the secretary of the church. 
and used that tribune of being the, the leader of the biggest church in French Polynesia to campaign against nuclear weapons, to campaign for a nuclear-free and independent Pacific. He later went to Geneva to work with the World Council of Churches, carried the Pacific voice, the Pacific anti-nuclear voice, the voice for decolonisation, the voice for human rights and women's rights and so on, into the European ecumenical networks uh, through the World Council of Churches. He was a great leader for the Pacific. He had the charisma and the style of of, uh, the great mature, the great leaders, teachers from the Pacific. And he persuaded pretty much the European churches that it was their responsibility to support the burgeoning anti-nuclear movement that existed in the Pacific, the decolonisation movements, self-determination movements, and so on. And when he came back to live in Tahiti again, as I mentioned, he was the co-founder of Moroe Etato, realising that the end of nuclear testing in 1996 didn't address questions about clean-up of the environment, didn't address questions about recognition of the rights of the workers and the military personnel who'd staffed the test site, didn't ultimately provide the compensation, the health care, uh, the reparations that are needed, an apology from the French state, which, despite the visit of French President François Hollande to Tahiti last year, the French have still not apologised for letting off 193 nuclear weapons at Mororo and Fangatofa. So John's quest, you know, it's sort of symbolic that just as the UN uh, moves to, to say, well, we have to get rid of these weapons, John let go. I'd imagine a, a number of his comrades and friends died in those years from the testing. Oh, many, many. Many of the key leaders of the nuclear free and independent movement that surged again in the 1970s have passed away. Uh, many of the women who took to the, the forefront in Fiji, Amalia Rokotuivuna and Ruth Lechte, both uh, pillars of the YWCA in uh, the Marshall Islands, Darlene Keiju Johnson, who famously went to the World Council of Churches Assembly in uh, 1983 and talked about the health impacts that women were facing in the Marshalls, the so-called jellyfish babies, you know, the, the miscarriages, the deaths, the stillborn babies that women were suffering as a legacy of uh, 67 American atmospheric tests at Bikini and Iniwetok. Murray Therese Danielson, her husband, Bengt, and Marie Therese uh, lived on uh, an island um, in the Tuamotu Archipelagos as anthropologists. She was French, he was uh, Danish. And a great Tahitian leader, Puvana Opa, travelled out by boat to the Tuamotos. Um, the copra boat came out, and Puvana Opa was collecting signatures for the Stockholm Peace Appeal in 1950. 1950, he was saying, we don't want nuclear weapons. And the Danielsons, who were anthropologists, were a bit surprised to find this uh, political leader coming out collecting signatures in one of the most isolated rural atolls of the Turamoto archipelago. And they started studying nuclear weapons and became leading campaigners to abolish French nuclear testing. Marie-Thérèse died uh, uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, so there are many great women, particularly, who led the anti-nuclear campaign, have passed on. I think we're going to need a new generation to step up because with President Trump, with Xi Jinping, with Mrs May, with Mr Kim, there's an awful lot to do and I think the issue is going to be thrust before us. It's certainly going to be thrust before Australians because we're one of the few countries in the world, one of the few countries in the Asia-Pacific region that says we want nuclear weapons. And I don't think that Julie Bishop speaks for most Australians. I think we need to stand up and let her know. 
Absolutely, and that's journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Songs of our time, teachers of our story. Let it be written in the maze, the survival of a culture is the reason that we made it. Join 3CR for our Invasion Day broadcast on January 26th. Tune into 3CR between 11am and 4pm for our Treaty Now special broadcasts. According to a report in The Age recently, the company running Victoria's desalination plant faces serious financial consequences if the plant fails to fire up for its maiden water order by the 30th of June. But activists and residents are more concerned about the environmental consequences of the plant and all aspects of ocean desalination. Jessica Harrison is a member of Watershed, an activist group opposing the desal plant. I spoke with Jessica at the weekend and asked her first about the history of desal plants in Australia. The first desal plant in Australia was in Perth, Winana, in an industrial area, then quickly followed by Sydney, Gold Coast, Tugan. And um, you can actually see easily, if you have a look on the Suez Degremont website, what their financial interests are. There are two French multinationals which specialise worldwide in setting up desal plants because, of course, it's a huge infrastructure undertaking to actually build a desal plant. Basically, I think what they did was realise that there could be a demand in Australia and then they just came in very strongly on the state governments with these proposals. The only one that really seems to be being used at the moment is the WA one because they've just had ongoing problems about their water storages. But in other states, such as in New South Wales at the moment, they have no need for their desal plant. But what a perfect financial undertaking to build something which you can then still charge the state governments for and not produce anything just for, again, the the so-called privilege of having it on so-called standby, mothballed, all the various other terms they use. And, of course, we're celebrating in Wonthaggy that they've been unable to get the desal plant going in there because it means one more month. Every month it's put off is one less month that all the waste is generated. The liquid waste goes out into the ocean. And so, yes, we were almost quaffing cheap bubbly just before New Year, in fact, when we heard that they were still having sort of basically a lot of infrastructure problems. Just go back to the time when it was proposed... Did the government panic? There were alternatives, weren't there? Certainly there were. And everyone was saying, look, these alternatives, which the population of Melbourne were very keen to undertake, they were already doing a lot of that. All my friends in Melbourne were doing a lot of water-saving methods. But they panicked, and I think that they heard from the desal consortiums, the two multinationals that I mentioned. Probably they just got into Steve Brax's ear, did a nice, powerful PowerPoint presentation. And what I find really interesting is thinking of Naomi Klein and shock doctrine. It's really that they got into a panic because of the changes in rainfall, which climate change was going to cause. And they thought, here's a solution. Of course, they chose the most expensive solution and, of course, the most environmentally damaging. And, of course, the energy intensity of desalinated water is liquid electricity. And it's a huge drain on our already fragile electricity infrastructure. Why was your area chosen as the 
side. Partly because it was liberal seat and they thought that we were sort of country hicks and they could get away with whatever they liked. And, of course, I think they didn't realise that there were a lot of people who really care passionately about the coast and that was what we had. You know, we had everyone from older people who've moved there because they like the clean environment to surfers to teachers to to scientists and so we got that broad campaign going. But um, who knows? I mean, they weren't going to go west because they had concerns about the depth of Port Phillip. But, of course, in WA they put it in an industrial area, so they weren't going to come across the same resistance that there was in Wonthaggy. What was the consultation? Ah, The consultation was us getting film of Brax flying over the area in a red helicopter and the announcement being made, Wonthaggy will have the desalination plant. And, of course, the joke is often made that politicians don't like to name sewage farms after themselves. Um, But I think that they've actually, the Labor Party, learnt that the desalination plant would become a sort of a weight around their necks. Just very briefly, how does it work? It just extracts the seawater, which, of course, as we've pointed out, isn't just water. It's a marine ecosystem. So everything from the tiny larvae, the the beginnings of the sea creatures to the seaweed to whatever dust and contaminants and all that is in the ocean gets sucked in in the similar way that a straw sucks up a drink. Then that water is slammed against a whole lot of sieves. And so those sieves, of course, collect everything. So those sieves have to be washed through with caustic solutions to actually clean them because you're dealing with an ecosystem, so that's going to rot. What happens with that, of course, is some of that waste is liquid and some of it's solid. So the solid stuff gets taken to Lindhurst tip. As we know, Lindhurst have been through their problems. If the desalination plant does actually manage to operate, it will still be delivering three to four trucks a day along our not very good roads to the Lindhurst tip. And then the the other liquid waste will get pumped back out to sea. When they did a test pump in around 2009, they contaminated the immediate area around the outlet pipe. They only knew that because they noticed that the seaweed had died off and it also cracked open the outlet pipe. They had underestimated the force of water that was coming out, the, um, basically the contaminant pipe. And, um, of course, because it's the biggest public-private partnership, because it's the biggest desalination plant that they have tried to build, there are always going to be unforeseen problems, as we know with any building site, when you start doubling and tripling everything up. And what was the problem with the transmission cable? Ah, well, this is really interesting. Of course, we get plenty of news about that that power line. So it was controversial when it was first decided to run the power line. So the VFF farmers, they all kicked up a fuss. The Liberals started saying, oh, the farmers don't like the fact that this overhead power line is going to be coming down, which is basically like one long extension lead down to the desal site from the grid near Cranbourne. So they decided in their wisdom to put it underground so it wouldn't upset the farmers. And, of course, we tried to make links from the people on the coast with the people in the hinterland. 
it was didn't go that well because they just said we want it underground they didn't oppose the desal plant in total it was put underground so it was put underground and i don't think that they'd ever tried to put a power line of that voltage underground also they were running other cables as well in the same hole so they were running cables for internet etc etc they put it in the hole the the ditch <laughs> which went through multiple farms and caused a lot of disruption but the farmers were compensated so then they put sand over it and then they put rollers over the sand to compact it. Well, that apparently was the start of the problems. Every joint then was disrupted. So every joint had to be dug up and retested and to see if it was sound because of the high voltage going through that cable. That apparently hasn't been successful. And even though they had to go right through the, the power line doing that, it still caused the fuses to blow. And this is what happened just before, just around Christmas time. And do they know how to fix it? What we hear on the grapevine is, of course, it's rumour, but often these rumours are proven, is that the inspectors aren't happy still with the cable. So, of course, the fact that it, it wrecked a bit of control equipment means that there's a fault, for, as an electrician I know, and there's a fault causes. Lisa Neville was on the media sounding like she was working for the Desal Consortium, but she was saying, no, it's destroyed a bit of equipment, but we have backup equipment, but we want to find out what causes it. Of course you would. You wouldn't want to constantly blow fuses or cause circuit breakers to trip. So as far as we know, that process is still taking place and the farmers are again having to go through having their paddocks dug up. Look at the cost. Is there any actual figure for the cost? Because they had to buy the land, they've had to compensate the farmers, they've got to build it, and it's absolutely huge, isn't it? Yeah. And then they've got to operate, run it, maintenance. Who's paying it for it? Is that the... Taxpayers? Well, it's basically, it's a complicated thing. Taxpayers, so far, they've been able to um, lessen the um, cost to the individual, say, water consumer. But um, what they've done is do a lot of borrowing. And so, of course, paying off that borrowing results in the cost of $1.8 million per day, which the state of Victoria has to come up with just to have the D-cell plant sitting there not working. Then it's gone from originally being $3 billion to 23 I think, if I remember correctly. And so that is a huge amount. And, of course, the state of Victoria backed that borrowing. That is a big concern if you look into the future for some of these threatened coal mines. If these coal mines, which are probably going to flop anyway because of the coal price, end up being able to use the whole state of a state of in Australia as backup for their borrowing, they probably will get away with it. And so that's what they happened. They had a shaky group of finances and they were able to pull that together and then the state of Victoria basically said, yeah, we'll go for it. And is that the private-public partnership? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, and, of course, that is our big concern. I mean, looking into the future, if any government did actually look in a forward-thinking way about those debts, which they've actually managed to double, double the length of time that they'll be doing that borrowing, they could still take it into public hands, according to Kenneth Davidson. And then it wouldn't be dependent on all that private borrowing, which is at huge interest rates. So that's, to me, that's the way it should go. If it was actually in public hands, to close it down and just have it there for even you know, for a few years wouldn't be costing us on a daily basis. 
And of course, it's got to be maintained, even though it's not working or it hasn't started up. There's still got to be people there. They have to do test pumps and so on. I mean, we did a protest when we heard it was actually going to be started up this year through the, God knows why they did it, through the ALP deciding that they they were going to order water for this time period. They have to let them know by the 1st of April that they want to start buying water on the following financial year. So they say that they have to produce the diesel plant has to produce water by the end of June or there are going to be penalties. Well, we think that in any building situation, if something actually can't produce what it's built to, to produce, there should be some penalties paid. And we've got an idea. You know, the high school in Wonthaggy is falling apart. I was speaking to a teacher. She said, oh, someone leant on the window and it felt like the window was going to fall out. So the, the headmaster said, don't lean on the window. We think that Something should come back at least to local area as we've been landed with this huge project. And who's testing the quality of the water? The quality of the water, that would be done internally by the consortium. Of course, it's it's been described as too pure, so they actually have to add trace elements back into it. But it's also known to be high in boron which um, is, again, an unknown quantity. But it will be, they say it will be shandied, well, it's their word for just mixed with other water from the reservoir. So people in Victoria won't be drinking nat- naturally pure desal water. And what about the water that's then flushed out into the ocean and all the other impurities? What does that do to the, in- well, the marine environment? I mean, we had our own marine expert who spoke when the environmental effects study was being done who explained that because Bass Strait is actually quite shallow compared to the surrounding ocean, because, of course, we know it's a land bridge to Tasmania, that the basically the, t- the tides just wash through that area. They circulate. They don't disperse into the deep ocean. So we strongly suspect, particularly as this small incident happened when the outlet pipeline broke apart, for which they were penalised a few hundred dollars by the EPA, we suspect that there will be more problems like that. Is there any possibility of a toxic chemical spill? Certainly there is. That's another thing that um, prompted us to protest um, around um, in December last year, which was a rumour that went around the town that the local hospital was stockpiling the antidote to one of the chemicals being used at the desal plant. We, for a start, said we want to know what that chemical is. And so we want to know what risk there is for any problems to the local people in the local area. And other creatures, not just humans, in the local area. And, of course, that information's not forthcoming. All we know is that the hospital is stockpiling the antidote to something, but we don't know what that And what reasons is. do they give for not disclosing that? They just haven't really given, an excuse, given any excuse. They just have gone quiet, basically. And I suppose that's another question. They used to do these little promotional full-page um, ads in the local paper about how wonderful everything was. But since all the problems with the power line and, and other problems with actually getting it online, we haven't had any of those little promotional full pages. Well, that's the, the marine environment. What about the land environment? How has that impacted course when it was built there were problems with the acid sulfate soils being disturbed so that caused in um, contamination in the immediate area so they promoted themselves as being this um, groundbreaking having a green roof so a lawn roof this was all to do with making it sort of blend into the coast we heard that the rats had got into the base of the lawn roof so that wasn't looking very good to give some credit they have actually planted out the whole area but because of the fact that we knew that the salt winds would would stunt a lot of the gro- the 
plants that have been put in there. It's actually handy for if people want to go for a driving lesson. It's not a bad little bit of road in a parking area, which is empty always. But surely they, they put the right sort of plants in. So well, tolerant. you would think so. Oh, yeah, you would think so. But, I mean, certainly it hasn't been it's a raging success. What about access to the ocean for people? Is it a big area where they've been denied that access? Uh, no, not really in that case. There were rumours, um, and we actually did a protest where we did put a fence down the beach thing, were we going to have access? But in that case... They probably have designed it fairly well, so there is still beach access. But, of course, we don't know if there was a contamination incident from the outlet pipeline that could severely affect the marine life and then it would affect where people were able to fish and so on. And how far out does the outlet pipe go? 1.8 kilometres, if I remember correctly. (laughs) But then the, the waves bring the yes, ship that's right. back again. And because um, there's a lot of there's tidal activity and there's some current activity, but not as much as they fantasised about when they first designed it, which is it would just disappear into nothing. What about the, the local farmers? You said some of them had their, their land ripped up and some have been compensated. Is that enough? To some people it's not. You know, there are still farmers who are angry about it. There's a sort of a low level of anger still bubbling along in the people in the town who have, of course, friends and relations who are farming up in the hills. And I'm sure that the ongoing problems with the power line are keeping those that sort of anger bubbling along. I mean, we just can't believe that they've actually decided to run the thing when the storages don't really require that. And we just wonder why they've entered into an agreement like that where they have to, on the, on, in April, decide, sort of basically have to guess if there'll be any need for it. And, of course, the point is made that if they manage to, to deliver water at the end of June, that's coming into winter. So what use is it going to be? Would the consortium pay any kind of compensation then or would the ALP, through embarrassment of having started the whole debacle, just let them off that? What about the use of energy? Yeah, well, the use of energy is a very interesting question considering the problems with Hazelwood, Loyang and so on. And again, it's I think it's a little bit of... Uh, they would have done desktop studies about how much energy it's actually going to take, but we've yet to really feel the effect of it running at full bore because it, it does, as you said, it's a huge energy use and its consumption is immense. And, of course, they have been running it. For their test pumps, they've been having to run it on diesel generators. So you can imagine the amount of diesel they need for that. And, of course, it runs 24 hours a day. That's right, yes. And all those pumps, they have to pump it over um, the Bass Hills and then pump it all the way up to a reservoir. And... There's a standby crew there all the time, is there? Yes, there is. I couldn't see many people there the other day, though, when we were having a driving lesson. But um, Well, what are people in the area doing now to vent their opposition? Is oh, it- well, we did have this little protest, um, as I said, where we, we put some money down the toilet because that's what we feel as if the desal plant is. And as I said, we really are hoping that it won't actually ever run because of the damage to the marine environment but also because of the costs to to all of us um, reflected in our bills and also our energy usage and the carbon emissions which will result. Who knows what will happen? The best thing for us was after we lost the battle to actually have it not built was just the fact that it was sitting there and not using a huge amount of energy and not pumping out the, con- the contamination. And of course the alternatives that were there 
are in still, 2007, eight are still there. They're still there, and I think that people would jump at the chance. The people of Melbourne would jump at the chance if they had a bit more encouragement. <laughs> and of course, there would be infrastructure to do with reusing stormwater and so on, and there could be incentives for businesses to use their roofs to to collect water. All those sort of low key innovations are all there waiting but of course you can't attach the name of a government to a stormwater drain can you the mistake that was made by Brax all those years ago still stands and they haven't gone for the sustainable solutions I believe a lot of the the big buildings in the city now are have actually got underground water tanks in them too yeah, well, even t- some of the houses in Wonthaggy have got these sort of bladders under their t- their foundations where they store rainwater. There was a big rush on, wasn't there, when there was the drought where people were just getting, putting tanks in left, right and centre. I don't think anyone's got rid of those tanks. Yeah. We would look towards some investment in the sort of in recycling as the best way forward. But the other thing is, of course, to take the whole project and look at it carefully to do with the economics of it. Would you get any joy if the Liberals got in? No, because the Liberals haven't committed to doing anything apart from complain about the Labor Party. In fact, we would like the Liberals to commit to putting it in public hands. But you don't get many Liberals liberals, um, suggesting that as a way forward, do you? So you're now waiting to see how the next test we're goes. Had, we're that... basically keeping our ear to the ground because those rumours are continuing to sort of percolate through the town about the problems out there. And once they get the power line going, who knows what other problems will start because it's a huge undertaking and it has never been tried on that scale before. Yeah, all we can say is, I suppose, a warning to any governments as well. Think before you listen to little public-private partnership proposal by a, a huge water consortium, which is, of course, the same company that owns, for example, Hazelwood, which has been in the news about asking for a huge amount of money for it to be remediated. These people aren't really known for actually um, following through. They're, own, they're known for sort of selling up fast if they have to actually pay out. Oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention is last week's Standards and Poor said that if the desalination project wasn't able to produce water by the end of June, it would stand in a very bad situation in the global financial stakes. And they, of course, <laughs> do have a bit of an, a global angle on the whole thing. So basically, if you undertake a project like that, you have to be able to produce. And so it was basically a little bit of a warning to to the consortium, you better get yourself together. And they are carrying a hell of a lot of debt at the moment. The That's right. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Suez Degremont might live to regret their sort of extravagant promises to the Brax government. And that's Jessica Harrison from the group Watershed, and this is 3CR. A new year and a new president of the United States. When Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton last year, it was seen by some as the biggest upset in US history. The condemnations have come thick and fast, since November, predicting mostly doom and gloom, but some nevertheless view the defeat of Clinton as a definite plus. Kathy Kelly is a long-time peace activist and currently a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. When I asked, spoke with Kathy, I asked her to look back to that time eight years ago 
and how she would describe the mood of the nation as they prepared for the first African-American president. What was the economic and social situation then? Well, there certainly was a sense of jubilance, a sense of assurance that things would change. I remember a friend calling me from Germany, and he said, here in Europe, we think your Obama walks on water. And it was very, very cold, freezing cold in Chicago. But our group had decided to set up Camp Hope from the time after President Obama had been elected until he would actually be inaugurated for a month. We wanted to have a daily set of teach-ins and an around-the-clock vigil out in the cold in order to say to President Obama, we're with you, we support you on issues like closing Guantanamo and ending the war in Iraq and improving health care and uh, dismantling the prison industrial complex, dealing with global warming. In the middle of that time, I myself took off to unexpectedly go to Gaza because a three-week war went on, which ended up costing the lives of between 1,400 and 1,200 people. It's not certain exactly how many Gazans were killed. There were 13 Israelis killed during what was a terrible military assault. 75% of the houses that were destroyed were never rebuilt. And I kept thinking as I'd watch on TV after a ceasefire had been signed and I was still in Gaza and seeing the terrible destruction, I thought, surely President Obama, when he is being inaugurated, when he has the world attention, will say something about this assault on human beings that was so bloody and vindictive and cruel, and he never said a word. And in a way, our group being out in the cold was symbolic. Uh, for where the peace movement remained in many ways, because President Obama proved himself to be a centrist and a militarist. Recently, Medea Benjamin wrote that in 2016 alone, the Obama administration dropped at least worldwide 26,171 bombs. You know, he uh, continued the war in Afghanistan, there's been no end to war in Iraq. Other wars were started. The usage of drone assassination uh, grew massively under his administration. In the first six years of the Obama administration, more weapons sales to other countries were negotiated than under any other previous administration. Weapon proliferation has continued. Israel continued with vicious assaults against Gaza and attacks on the West Bank. We do have Obamacare and the pact with Iran and the United States recognition of Cuba. So it isn't to say that there weren't some gains. But on the whole, I think when we look at Trumpism now, we should see it, I think, best as a, a sort of a manifestation of many processes that have been going on for a very long time within the United States. Can I take you back to the time when he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize? What were people thinking at that time? Well, I think at that time people might have thought, okay, the Nobel Committee wanted to support Obama in his inclinations toward peacemaking, much as our group, you know, with our little Camp Hope, camped near his Chicago home had hoped to do. 
But it did seem clear in his acceptance speech that he, although he lauded Gandhi and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, he himself didn't embrace those beliefs in nonviolence. He said wars are necessary. And he certainly has made it clear that he will continue to support using warfare and threat and force in the realm of foreign policy and I think also in a war against poor people in the United States. What were the expectations of people of colour when he came into power? Well, now that's a very important question. I think that people of colour saw this as a, a very great opportunity to reverse the consequences of racism. And when he was re-elected a second time, I think that gave people of color an assurance that they've moved into a new time when an African-American person could be president uh, for two successive terms. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that that has been an important recognition. But I also think that in as much as the consequences, for instance, of mass incarceration have led to increased poverty in African-American communities who are disproportionately represented in the prison system. I mean, in my own state of Illinois, uh, blacks represent 30% of the population, but uh, well over 50% of the numbers of people in prison. For every uh, 100,000 people living in Illinois, 1,533 black people are in prison. I don't think that... President Obama built on what we used to call the war against poverty. I think instead he endorsed the policies that were desired by the 1%, by the bankers, by the CEOs of major corporations, including uh, military contractors. He placated people that are contributing toward the pollution of neighborhoods with toxic fumes in order to uh, engage in uh, fuel industries that are, are, are completely inimical to global health and planetary survival. He didn't challenge those kinds of corporate entities in any way near what would have been necessary to reverse some very, very terrible trends that hurt the, the, the poorest and the most vulnerable, first of all. And then when you look at the consequences of mass incarceration, then you're also seeing people that are disenfranchised, they can't vote, they have a very difficult time finding employment. They return from prisons to families that are broken. There's a stigma that goes with having been imprisoned. And so we had hoped that President Obama might make some gains dismantling this prison industrial complex. Because once a system involves government jobs and corporate profits, it becomes very, very entrenched, and it's difficult to dismantle. And so. If we couldn't make some gains toward that end under President Obama, where are we going to be now under President Trump? It is important, I think, to look at a map of the United States and understand what the expected life expectancy is, what the average life expectancy is for people. And it's so puzzling because... We talk here about red states and blue states, and the red states are the most conservative states where people don't want any kind of government regulation of their lives, and, and so they'll oppose government regulations in terms of environmental issues or education 
or health care, or even, you know, preventing the ravages of global warming. And in those red states, it's in those areas that people have the worst conditions in terms of poor schooling, uh, high divorce rates, teenage pregnancies, the life expectancy is five years less than people who live in the blue states. And yet these are very often people who, I think because of propaganda and because of distractions created by sports and entertainment, will often believe that, that their best hopes are represented by the very conservative policies of people like Donald Trump, who are completely want to dismantle environmental protection or um, don't even believe in consequences of global warming. So you've got a state like Louisiana with a huge, long coastline, you know, bordered by the ocean. And yet people in Louisiana, instead of trying to get policies in place that will prevent flooding and save their coastline, have instead voted for people who are against any kind of government regulations or policies. Has Obama at all moved in any way to address the number of black people who are killed by the police? Well, he has certainly expressed his profound regret. Uh, There's a famous picture in January of 2016 of his eyes tearing up as he talked about gun violence and the difficulties in trying to regulate the sale of guns and ammunition. And I think he, he genuinely has wanted to uh, force the National Rifle Association, for instance, the, and, and some of these other gun lobbies to uh, submit to regulations that would forbid the sale of guns and silencers and bullets and require more identification of who it is that applies to get these kinds of weapons. But when he would propose legislation, the gun sales would actually rise astronomically because people would think, uh-oh, there's going to be some kind of regulation. We better run out and buy guns and weapons and ammunition now. I also think, however, that, for instance, in my city in Chicago, we recently held a very, very sad parade, if you will, down the most expensive street. It's called the Magnificent Mile, Michigan Avenue in Chicago, carrying 40-pound crosses. There were 750 people, each carrying a cross to represent somebody who was killed by gun violence. And most of those victims came from three neighborhoods in Chicago, all of them almost completely African-American or Hispanic, very neglected, very impoverished, incredibly high rates of unemployment, and uh, places where this mass incarceration has infected, has affected almost every family. Well, when you look at the numbers of children in the Chicago City public schools enrolled in military training programs, you're looking at 9,000 children all from these very poor neighborhoods who are enrolled in military training programs that train them to believe that if you have a problem, you solve it through killing and threat and force. And that doesn't make any sense. And then, as I said, you look at the mass incarceration and the rates of black people imprisoned and 
uh, it, it begins to be unsurprising that there would be gun violence and of course high high mistrust of the police because the police have killed so many people in cold blood it's it's a bit like the targeted assassinations in drone warfare the police will just decide somebody got out of a car and might pose a threat and they shoot the person down if it's a young black man and also the lack of care for veterans you spoke about training young people to be maybe in the the military these young people come back from all these conflicts they're not given support they end up homeless with mental problems has anything been done about that during the eight years of Obama? Well, there hasn't been any alleviation of the terrible statistic of an average of 22 combat veterans every day committing suicide. Again and again, the Iraq veterans against war, the veterans of the war in Afghanistan, beg for a better access to mental health care, to, to counseling groups to uh, being able to get some kind of alleviation for post-traumatic stress. But the, the, the Veterans Administration has never been able to catch up with the terrible neediness. And, and some of the veterans, quite honestly, come back, and, and if they're so traumatized, they head for the margins. I was out in the state of Colorado, and we were in a very, very desolate and impoverished county within Colorado, and meeting with people who are trying to deal with the poverty by inviting people to come and plant gardens and grow their own food, and then they would also help distribute food. But there's a population out there that they really feel it's almost impossible to help. They call it the Rocky Flats, Iraqi Flats. And these are Iraqi uh, veterans, U.S. veterans of war in Iraq, who are so traumatized they don't want to live anywhere near society, and they... They put up these shacks. I mean, they look a bit like what I've seen in Kabul in the very desperate refugee camps. And, and every now and then they'll come closer to get water or food. But they're, they're so traumatized by the wars. What about deportations, mainly to Mexico, of people from Latin America living in countries in the south? Has that improved at all under Obama, or are more people being deported? There have been improvements, and I would say, for instance, again, in my own city of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, who was a um, very top aide in the Clinton administration, has recognized that the voting population in Chicago has more Hispanics voting than whites, and so now he has made Chicago a sanctuary city, and he has said he will refuse federally mandated insistence that uh, people be expelled and, and sent back to countries that they came from. And I think it's beginning to um, become more evident in even the mainstream media that there will be high consequences if the migrant workers are expelled from the United States because there are not replacement groups that will pick the crops. And this will cause inflation in food prices, and this will have a, a, a big effect on food. And then there are also so many people working in the restaurant industry and food services. And so if you expel all of those people, there would be tremendous consequences. And we haven't heard from President-elect Trump what he's planning to do to offset those kinds of uh, disastrous consequences of the policies he said he follows. So I think certainly 
people who are turning out en masse for demonstrations now, anticipating a, a Trump presidency and the kind of advancement of what we call Trumpism, are, are going to be a bit nostalgic for the Obama administration. You're listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. The program is Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Cathy Kelly, who is a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Can we talk a bit more about Guantanamo Bay? What were your hopes that what could happen with the people who have been incarcerated in that hellhole without being convicted of anything? Well, we had certainly hoped that the processes would move far more quickly than they ever did for those who were finally released, so many of them held without charge. And we had hoped that every person would be moved out of Guantanamo and the place would be shut down before President Obama went out of office. We had hoped also that the mainstream media would pay far more attention to the consequences of torturing people and how their lives are altered forever because of that torture. We had hoped that there would be more of an apology for Guantanamo exists at all issued and that the United States would express its resolve to never again engage in rendition and to close down the black sites that exist all over the world where people are taken for torture in countries that allow torture to be used. So there are many, many disappointments, quite honestly. Um, We in our fasting community went to the White House, we went to the Pentagon, we went to the Supreme Court, and in all of those places we kept singing a refrain that said, let them go home. There are still 55 prisoners in Guantanamo. It's possible 19 more will be released over the coming week, but then what of those who still remain? And then what of the fact that, I mean, Guantanamo itself is still there. And um, President Trump has said, that he welcomes the opportunity to use Guantanamo. He says, we will load it up with really bad dudes. And he believes in torture. He advocates it as a a worthwhile method. Can you talk about the furtherance of national security, the Department of Homeland Security, how that's impacting on people's lives? Well, in my view, our security is founded in extending a clear hand of friendship to people in other countries and recognizing their humanity and trying to share our resources. I think the Department of Homeland Security has managed to create a culture of fear, uses many ways to exacerbate that sense of fear and to kind of pound into people's minds, be afraid, be very afraid, turn other people in. If you see something, say something. And people go along with so many searches, with so many invasive processes, whether they're at the airports or sometimes within their own homes and their job places, it's become the norm to accept that the Department of Homeland Security and the military are in cahoots and improving our lives. We're supposed to be grateful. Uh, We're supposed to be thanking the military every time we see them in public. And, you know, I ride on the trains quite a lot. Uh, I notice now that when the Amtrak ticket collector collects the tickets, he takes time to shake the hand of a uniformed traveler uh, and and say, thank you for your service. And I mean, I I think we should take care of these veterans upon return, but I don't see why we should be extolling them at our sports events and even on the trains, thanking them. We have no idea what they went through, what they experienced. But I think 
you know, the Department of Homeland Security has had so much more money than uh, groups that would try to build friendly relations by sharing resources with people in other parts of the world. It's a very foolish endeavor. And when you talk about government money pouring into things, you've got to look at Afghanistan, the country which you visit on a regular basis. Lots of money going into Afghanistan, but it's not going in to help the people. Well, that certainly has been a travesty. Uh, the last time I was in Afghanistan, I, I went to a camp for people who've been displaced, who've run away from fighting or who can't plant their land because there's too much military ordnance sunk into their grounds or they've you know, they seen a drone fly overhead and they're afraid that um, they'll be targeted for assassination, as does happen so often. And you know, people are so desperate that the only way they can get some food into their families is to send the children over to the nearby market and hope they might be able to work for a pittance and maybe once in a while bring back some turnips or potatoes. And I, I held one woman in my arms who said that she had nothing to give her children, not even bread, not even tea, and she, she didn't know what she would do. And uh, this kind of desperation is uh, happening in many, many places amongst the 1.8 million people in Afghanistan who are internally displaced. And now Europe and Iran and Pakistan are talking about forcing people to go back to Afghanistan, saying, oh, it's secure now, you'll be okay. Well, that's an insane notion. There aren't jobs, there aren't places for people to live, the water isn't potable, the uh, rates of uh, children who are born to mothers and then die in childbirth or during their infancy is higher than anywhere else in the world. And meanwhile, you know, the United States installations are places where money is lavished still. And there's plenty of money for aerial surveillance and for experimentation with huge weapon systems and uh, plenty of money so that the military can pay people to collaborate with them. And this expands this idea of militarism being the only way to solve problems. What they're calling an era of permanent war. Well, we've certainly seen that now in both Afghanistan and in Iraq. You know, you can maybe hope that these wars will eventually kind of burn themselves out, but the United States has poured so much weaponry into those two countries. And, and then, you know, the rifles go over there and they go missing. They're unaccounted for. Millions of rifles have been distributed and nobody knows who's got them or, or how they got there other than that they first arrived from the United States. What are the positives of eight years of Obama? Again, I want to say that the idea of um, the dignity, the potential for a person to become a, a, a major world leader was certainly held up to every child all across the United States, and I think that was a very good thing. I think the affection that people felt for Michelle Obama and the respect for the decency and the goodness of their family has been a good thing. I think certainly the pact with Iran has been very, very important. I think recognition of Cuba has been important. And Obamacare has made a big difference in the lives of 20 million people. 
that gets revoked, as the Republicans claim they're going to do, and as soon as they get into office, this will be a huge disaster for people who are vulnerable and have no other means to take care of their most basic health needs. I also think that in terms of global warming uh, and climate change, President Obama may have at least uh, indicated that he thought that was a good direction in which other countries should go. I don't think he's done much to help people across the United States convert away from our bloated militarism, for instance. He hasn't done much to help uh, retrofit the housing stack or uh, build mass transit systems or create the kinds of jobs that would endorse green energy and clean energy. Women's rights? Amongst impoverished families, I think women want the right to be able to feed their children, to be able to educate their children. And we still have appalling rates of poor performance on the part of children all across the United States and uh, hunger, even infant mortality are high amongst the poorest populations within the United States. So I'm not very impressed in terms of women's rights. Also, it, it troubles me that some of the women who reach the highest levels of office are thoroughgoing militarists and hawks uh, and celebrate wars as they coming along. And in that category, I'd certainly include Senator Clinton and her efforts to become president and also Samantha Power representing the United States at the United Nations. What do you believe Clinton would have done differently if she'd have got in? I don't think Hillary Clinton would have repealed Obamacare. also believe that she would have recognized that there were many, many people who mistrusted her and that if she wanted to have a second term, she would have to start paying attention, not necessarily to the white supremacists or the kind of uh, deep-seated haters, but, but those who really did have economic woes and, and worries. She might have tried to figure out ways to design policies that would woo some of those people away from the Republican Party and toward a, a, a their interaction with the Democratic Party. But um, I think she would have maintained an alignment with the, as we say, the 1% with the corporate wealth, the people that are um, military contractors, the people that want to maintain the status quo in terms of the United States being the most heavily armed and the most heavily invested in war-making anywhere in the world. What are the preparations for opposition to Trump once he gets in? Well, there are not only preparations, Jan, but there have been an extraordinary number of demonstrations that have already happened. I think the fight for 15 has said, uh, you know, we're not going to give up now and held rallies all across the country. Uh, in my city today, there's a huge rally, in fact, taking place this afternoon of people who say that they will oppose a repeal of Obamacare. Numbers of people planning concurrent activities during the inauguration are um, numbering, uh, I think, in the at least 30 major cities across the United States planning for actions on the, uh, the Women's March on Washington will probably have a, a, a very massive presence. Uh, when I was in Washington, D.C., there were many groups already trying to decide which checkpoint they would gather at in order to do civil disobedience as the various groups 
uh, come in, in, into um, the parade going through, through checkpoints. Uh, when I was in Washington, D.C., the um, sessions that are happening to gain Senate approval of uh, Attorney General Sessions, Timothy Sessions, were interrupted multiple times by activists. We can expect that there will be um, people within the environmental protection movement who will continue the, the really wonderful example of the Standing Rock people, the sacred water protectors who gathered and held their ground in spite of vicious militarist attacks against them. And there's also a great fear, I believe, of what might happen regarding China and Russia. Is that correct or not? The United States is already uh, undermining both China and Russia by the Asia pivot, by its policies of surrounding both of those countries with nuclear-armed Trident submarines, with bases all along the borders of Russia and bases uh, that are meant to be a signal to China that the United States is going to continue using its military superiority. This, of course, will spur on more of an, a weapons race, an arms race between the countries. The culture of fear is being built up. The United States people are being taught, again, by the mainstream media and by people elected to office who should know better. We're being taught, again, to fear Russians. And I was over there, and uh, several of my friends did a follow-up delegation twice in the past year, and we didn't meet a single Russian who wanted to go to war, not a single person. And we met many, many people from different walks of life. And in terms of China, you know, I think the United States is going to stoke fears of Chinese people, and we are missing opportunities to work together with China to tackle the real terrorism we face, which is the terror of global warming and climate change. And the Chinese have actually made some pretty extraordinary advances in that regard. But the United States, by continually building up our military is going to force China to take money it needs to feed people, to bring people out of poverty, and to solve problems related to the environment, and to spending money on, on military buildup. Well, this is exactly what happened with the Soviet Union, isn't it? Yeah, you know, when you think about the lines of people that were standing outside of bakeries in the Soviet Union, you know, kneading bread. And then when you think of the lines of people in the United States who were entering into the prisons because of you know, lack of jobs and lack of education, and then you think of these military contractors who made so much money building up the capacity to annihilate every species on the planet. It, it never made any sense, and, and we're, we're moving right back into that Cold War mentality. You know, I think back to my younger self when I recognized with other friends that we couldn't compromise with the Cold War mentality. And we went off and planted corn on top of nuclear missile silo sites. And I did a year in maximum security prison for that. But I, I often think that was some of the best education I ever got. And I see young people today, you know, I was with them fasting for eight days in Washington, D.C., and they were yearning yearning to be part of a different world, to help build a better world. So I think as we see people reaching out cross-culturally, reaching out across class lines, reaching out multiracially, reaching out to Muslim brothers and sisters, I think we may see 
um, movements that will have deeper roots and will enlarge themselves. We, we, we must. We have to do this or we won't survive. Just knowing that you've got such a wonderful curiosity about what's happening in the United States and that we have linkage to people all around the world who see Brexit and Lacan and Modi in India as threats to our collective human survival. I think the United States is just uh, less than 5% of the world's population, and uh, we have every good reason to link with people worldwide to stop the effects of Trumpism and to make sure that they evaporate. Okay. Bye-bye, Kathy. Bye-bye now. And thanks once again to Kathy Kelly, who's a long-time peace activist in the United States. She's a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. That's all for me for today. Just to go out, I'm just to remind you of the meeting this Saturday at St Ambrose Hall, 3 Dawson Street, Brunswick. The enactment of Daniel Mannix's talk where he criticised World War I as a sordid trade war. It's Rod Quantock as Daniel Mannix. So that's between 2 and 3.30 this Sunday at St Ambrose Hall, 3 Dawson Street in Brunswick for the Brunswick-Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign. And Dr Val Noon will be talking at that as well. So good to go to. Might see you there. That'll be great. I'll go out now. Done by Law will be here in just a moment. And um, I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. So it's bye for now.